you know, this is what would have once been called a CSR team, and we changed the name of the team so fundraisers can't find us, basically. <laughs> Hey guys, I'm Carlos Miranda, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I started IG in 2011, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, corporates, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers and want to help them better understand one another. And so we bring you What Donors Want, a fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into Major Gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, and I'm a colleague of Carlos's from IG. I'm also the producer of What Donors Want, and I am very excited for today's episode. We hosted our first live recording with a live studio audience at global law firm DLA Piper, where we spoke with Nicholas Patrick, DLA's partner and head of responsible business. The room was packed with both fundraisers and corporate impact leaders, and we are so blown away by the response. As I said, it is a live recording, so this episode is slightly longer than usual, and it includes an audience Q&A. As I'm sure you'll be able to tell, it was a seriously excellent morning, and we're so thrilled to feature DLA Piper as our first corporate guest. Enjoy! Welcome, everyone, to What Donors Want. We are so thrilled to be here with DLA Piper on the 11th floor on this glorious, sunshine London day facing St. Paul's Cathedral. And I'm joined here by my colleague, Alicia Miranda, who's our managing director, and she's going to tell us a little more about today's guest. So DLA Piper uh, is a global law firm, and they are located in over 40 countries in the Americas, Europe, and the Middle East, Africa, and Asia Pacific. They have an enormous range of clients from multinational Fortune 500 enterprises to emerging tech companies across those markets. When it comes to responsible business in the legal sector, DLA Piper is absolutely leading the charge with both their pro bono practice and their community work. Across their markets, they provide physical and virtual legal clinics to help people who cannot afford a lawyer with civil legal issues, as well as support organizations to litigate issues that promote access to justice. They also do a huge amount of research on critical issues to help advocacy organizations do their work better. Uh, in addition to their multi-million pound partnership with UNICEF, DLA has also just launched a global scholarship program that supports promising legal talent from around the world. And we are thrilled to be joined by Nicholas Patrick. He is DLA. LA's partner and head of responsible business. In this role, he leads the pro bono practice for DLA Piper in Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and the Asia Pacific region in over 60 offices and with over 3,000 staff members. So welcome, Nick Patrick, to What Donors Want. Thank you very much. I'm very thrilled to be here. Amazing. So those of you who have listened to the podcast know we always start with a fun speed round of questions, which is, again, to bring that life... Fun for me or fun for you? (laughs) Both. Fun for both. Debatable. (laughs) Hopefully both. Uh, Full disclosure, Nick has not seen these questions. Uh, But we really, we do this because, you know, donors are people, and it's really important to remember that. (laughs) Here we go. There's 10 questions. I'll pay you money if I don't have to add some. (laughs) You can plead the fifth. You are lawyer. This is true. Oh, but we're not in America, so there's probably some British equivalent of that. (laughs) All right. Question number one. What was the last show that you binged? Uh, I watched Jemay Private School Girl um, on BBC, which is by Chris Lilly, and then I enjoyed that so much I went back and re-watched Summer Heights High, which is obviously... Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) 
my TV list is basically made up of the answers to these questions. Um, if the world was going to end tomorrow, what would your last meal be? Last meal? Mm, this is like as hard as trying to decide what I'm going to have for dinner. I need my boyfriend here to tell me. <laughs> I can't make a decision about food for myself. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, so, as well, speaking of food, um, who is your dream dinner guest? Could be dead or alive. Alicia. <laughs> we mostly have lunch together, but that could, that could be uh, that could be arranged. Um, Vegemite or Marmite? Neither. Disgusting. <laughs> I agree. Um, if you could live in any country for one month, what would it be? Um, well, this around January last year, I was so depressed about the weather, I had to leave London, so I moved to Spain for weather-related reasons. So I would I would say Spain. Who is your favourite TV lawyer? TV lawyer? can't think of any TV lawyers. I don't watch that much TV, Alicia. Who's got time? <laughs> TV lawyers, tell me a few and I'll choose one. Um, um, Alicia Florek from The Good Wife. No, Not just because she shares it. my name. Uh, who else is on TV? Oh, mine's Annalise Keating from How to Get Away with yes. Murder. No, I haven't seen that Oh, it's, that's a good one. Highly recommend it. Or, well, SVU also. You're too busy watching Summer Heights either. No yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, coffee or tea? Coffee. Yeah, quick answer and a yeah. good one. I know. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Also a good answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Beach or snow? Definitely beach. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and finally, Brittany or Christina? Mm, I'd say Brittany, but yeah, I'll go for Brittany. Another correct answer. Co- as controversial choice. <laughs> it's a big due diligence question, that one for us. We have to ask it to all of our guests. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. You have officially survived the speed round. And now we can get down to business. So to kick us off with that, as partner and head of responsible business at DLA, can you give us an overview of your primary responsibilities in these roles? Okay. So um, a big part of the job is stakeholder engagement. This is about finding out what our stakeholders expect of us as a business and then ensuring that we meet and exceed those expectations. So I spend a lot of time talking to our clients Um, our key clients, understanding what they want from us. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to law students, graduates, um, our staff, uh, regulators, the law society, other law firms, and obviously community groups, civil society organisations and things like that. Um, And then in terms of meeting those expectations, um, you know, a a key expectation on a law firm is that we as lawyers and as professionals contribute to... Um, the promotion of access to justice. We want to ensure that everybody who needs legal assistance is able to get it. Um, Obviously, um, helping people to get legal advice, helping people to access the courts, access their legal rights is really important, something that we care about very deeply as as professionals and as lawyers. Um, Legal assistance, legal aid... Um, and access to justice is an important human right, and it's also a precondition to the enjoyment of a whole range of other human rights. So if people uh, are not able to enforce their rights, those rights are worthless. So for us, it's actually very important to help people to get legal assistance. Um, And so that's one of the things that our staff expect us to provide to them is opportunities to do pro bono work. So a key part of my role is running the pro bono practice. We have a very large pro bono team here. Um, I don't know about the sunglasses and the wind machines that Alicia talked about before, but um, we have we do have a great team of pro bono lawyers, and those those are, people are human rights lawyers. They run pro bono cases, um, but they also ensure that all of our lawyers are doing pro bono work. So we have to we have to generate the pro bono practice for the whole firm. Um, I also look after the firm's philanthropic giving, the firm's foundation. 
um, our scholarships program, our social mobility program. My team has a role in relation to our environmental responsibility, everything that it means to be a responsible business, really. Um, so it's a bit of a roving brief. Um, our job as a team, uh, my job and my team's role is to speak up when we see something that we think is not right and also to create a culture where other people feel that um, they're comfortable to speak up as well. Um, and then in my spare time, I'm a human rights lawyer as well, so I run your some, some human rights cases also. Amazing. Um, and I'm glad you talked about responsible business because I think uh, companies have a lot of different names for what they call this type of work. Um, corporate philanthropy, what it used to be, you hear sustainability, corporate responsibility, corporate social responsibility, community involvement, community investment. I could go on, uh, but I won't. Um, but uh, responsible business seems to really fit what you do. Why did you settle on that term at DLA? Um, and uh, what does it mean for the organizations who want to partner with you? Well. Um, you know, this is a team that used to, would have once been called a CSR team. Um, and um, we changed the name of the team so fundraisers can't find us, basically. <laughs> um, the same way we, reason we call pro bono work pro bono work, it's really free legal advice. But, you know, if we call it free legal advice, everybody will come asking. So we call it pro bono and then a lot of people don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, we don't have to give too much away. Um, but seriously, uh, responsible business for us is really about, um, it's, it's to indicate that it, it's relevant to everything we do as a business. You know, CSR, I think, we, cha we changed the, the name from CSR to responsible business around the time of the Volkswagen um, sort of scandals. And Volkswagen had lo won lots of awards for their CSR. And, you know, there was CSR over here and there was your business over there. And for us, um, we just wanted to really emphasize that it's all the same thing. We have to be responsible in everything we do. We can't have a community program that's sort of a bolt-on to the business. Yeah, absolutely. So sophisticated corporate fundraising involves helping a company meet a business objective or yep. solve a business challenge, um, as opposed to just coming uh, with the begging bowl in hand and asking for something. Um, so in this context, what are the business drivers for DLA when you undertake pro bono projects or community work? Well, if I can use our scholarship program as an example, um, we've just set up last year, we've been doing scholarships for a long time, but what we decided to do last year is to bring our scholarships program in-house and run our own program rather than funding scholarships that other organisations were, were running. And we are funding um, 50 law students, giving scholarships to 50 law students in the LDCs, the least developed countries. Um, and we will pay for their tuition over a period of two years. We'll bring them together as a group to do training over the two-year period, and we'll place them into our offices over that two-year period in their university vacations to have international and local work experience. They'll also spend some time working with our clients, including our pro bono clients. They'll get to do some pro bono work. Um, and really what we're doing is uh, we will provide um, other support like laptops and make sure they've got appropriate business attire and things like that. Um, and so that is very much a philanthropic program. It's about supporting um, the legal profession and the, the development of the legal profession in some of these least developed countries. Um, it's also about the rule of law. Rule of law is a big focus for us. We can't do business. Our clients can't do business unless there is a strong, stable legal system. Just said strong and stable. Okay, unless there's a, unless, without rule of law, we have no business. We'll edit that out, don't <laughs> yeah. worry. Um, so so it's, it really is a philanthropic program, but it's also, it's also directly relevant to our business. 
these these LDCs, these least developed countries, are also emerging economies, and they're places where we are already doing business and making money. We want to reinvest there, so that's the philanthropic aspect. But um, you know, as I've said to our executive and our board, in ten years' time, there's going to be 500 DLA Piper Fellows who've come through this program in these least developed countries. They'll be working in business and in government, and. Um, they will be important networks for the firm. They will be hopefully evangelists for the firm. Um, so it's good for our brand and it's good for our reputation. And we're already seeing that you know some of the governments in these countries really love what we're doing with this program and um, are sending us work. So um, you know it wasn't that wasn't the intention of the program, but it's very much aligned to our business objectives. Yeah, it's a real mutual benefit, I think. Yeah. And uh, one of the best practice things that we see that you guys do and others um, is to really understand what that mutual benefit is. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know, a couple of years ago, Alicia, we asked you to come and look at our foundation mm-hmm. um, and to just give us a review on how the foundation was going. One of the things that you said was that. Um, you know, best practice corporate foundations are really about running your own branded initiatives. And that's what we've really tried to do. Um, and, you know, I think credit to you for, for giving us that advice. So oh, that's one of, the, one of the things we tried to do was really to look at, as I said, we're already doing a lot of scholarships and realise that rather than just funding other organisations to run these scholarships, we can actually build something um, that is was better for us and made more sense for us than the programs that we're funding. Fabulous. That's a really interesting answer you gave about why you chose the term responsible business. And we're wondering, so you you said that you designed it as a way to sort of hide from fundraisers and have more control over who you engage with uh, on a partner front. I was kidding. (laughs) But but it's an interesting point. So when, when you've chosen an area to focus on or support, can you give us a glimpse into your process of identifying organizations within that? if you're going out and really proactively seeking them? Yeah, so um, we, do, we, we, we choose the organisations that we work with. They don't, they don't choose us. Mm-hmm. Um, in our pro, bono pra- our pro bono practice is a very large legal practice for us. We do about 200,000 pro bono hours globally every year, which is, a, which is about a £60 million programme every year. Um, our focus areas um, at the moment in our pro bono practice are rule of law, um, children's rights and migration rights, looking at refugees and asylum seekers and displaced people. Um, and when we select those areas, we then go and map the organisations that we think are leading organisations working in that space. Um, so we look for the organisations that we think have the best reputation, are making the best impact. Um, and then we approach those organisations and look, think, look at the work they're doing and think about how we can work with them. Obviously, because we're a law firm, we're really interested in working with organisations that are um, using the law as a tool for social change. That's Mm -hmm. where we can provide the most assistance. Um, So if you look at an organisation like UNICEF, for example, an organisation we work with a lot in the the children's rights space, um, they are very much in the business of um, legal rights, obviously, for children, implementing the Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, and we help them to work with governments to amend legislation and regulation. So that's the upstream work that they do, and it's perfect work for lawyers to be involved in. And then we get involved in things like training people who work in the justice system on the new on the new rules. Um, so training of judges, police officers, um, court staff, and those sorts of things. And so when you have decided that and you reach out to these organizations, is there anything a fundraiser can do to make their organization stand out in that context in terms of relationship building, how they present the case? What role does a fundraiser play in your decision-making process? 
Um, we, tr we generally try not to work with the fundraisers because um, for us, the relationship will often start with the pro bono work. So we tend not to give money to organisations we don't know. Mm. Um, so we, we would normally only become a financial donor um, to an organisation that we know and that we've worked with. Um, and that will often start with a pro bono relationship. Mm -hmm. um, when exploring these potential partnerships, what is the most common mistake that organisations have made with you? I think the worst um, thing that an organisation can do in terms of fundraising is uh, an e just an email. You know, the first time you mm -hmm. hear of an organisation or hear from an organisation is an email asking for money. And I would get at least five or six a week on a good week. Um, it's It's got to the point where I you know, with the best will in the world, cannot respond to every unsolicited email that I receive. Um, so, you know, I think, I think an email asking for money is not a good approach. Yeah. And I think also, as I said, you know, understanding what the, the, the business is interested in, um, what are the things that we're doing, and, and you know, if it's, if it's not one of our focus areas, then it's not something that we're going to fund. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point because at IG we do, we specialize in major gifts fundraising, which is really, we take the relationship-based ethos to that, which is don't do the cold emails, build relationships, make the partner feel like they're soliciting you, but make sure that you're in the same space as them and that they know about you. Exactly. Because it's, it's important to put yourself in front of them so that when you go out and do your partner scoping, you're aware of the key players in that space. And, and fundraisers do have an important role to play in that, but it's important to not Yeah, I think feel, that's right. Yeah, to do it tactfully. Having said that, a cold call can occasionally work. I was having a conversation with my colleague Michelle last week, and she was telling me how busy and stressed she was. And my phone rang, and it was somebody asking us for a donation for a worm farm. And just to stir her up, I said, you know, you should really speak to my colleague Michelle. <laughs> and here's her email address. So she got the email from the worm farm asking for some money. And I don't know whether she really did it or not, or whether she was just trying to teach me a lesson. But she tells me she's given money to the worm farm just to get me back for referring them to her. So somewhere there's a worm farm with a DLA Piper logo on it. That's amazing. Four worms everywhere. Exactly. There's always a road piece. Yeah. Um, Nick, to what extent do you feel like uh, when you are approached by charities and nonprofits they, that they understand your business as a law firm as opposed to being a general corporate? Because law firms are quite different from companies, and um, I'm wondering if you feel like the people you meet know that well enough, if they've done enough research. Um, look, we, I think the, the organizations that we're really working with are pretty sophisticated, um, and I think generally the organizations we work with do understand that. Um, but as I said, we, ch we choose our partners. Mm -hmm. They don't choose us. So I think we're in maybe in a little bit of a different category. Um, Again, um, if, I, if I give an example, for the last five years, we've been running um, social mobility programs in the UK, and we've worked with lots and lots of different organisations. Many of those organisations approached us and pitched an idea to us, and we, we you know, just agreed that that looks good and we'll do that in our Leeds office. We don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. We now have a, a program that runs consistently across the UK. It's called Head Start. And we've selected just one delivery partner, basically, which is called the Sutton Trust. Um, so we, in the same way that we set up our scholarships program, which is an international program, we set up this Head Start program. And um, the Head Start program um, is a, a five-year program. 
the old programs that were used to run with these organisations that would sort of sell you a social mobility program were programs that often went for a week. Um, the students that were in the, the programs that we used to run varied in age from 6 to 14. Um, they had varied academic achievement. Um, we were, we were working with 25 plus delivery partners across the UK. We were running 60 programs per year. Um, and these programs were mainly about volunteering opportunities for our staff. You couldn't really track the impact on mm. the students over a long time. You could ask them at the end of the program what they got out of it and those sorts of things, and we did. Um, but you know, we, we thought that we could design something better. Um, and we really designed, what we tried to do is design our own program. Um, which is a much, much longer-term proposition. The program, as I said, runs for five years. All the students who come into it are 16 years old at the commencement of the program. Um, they're all students who have the capability and the intention to study law, so it's really driven towards people who want to be in this profession. Um, it's one program working across all of, our, all of our offices. It was 60 programs running separately across all of our offices in the UK before. Um, and the Sutton Trust is an organisation that was one of our delivery partners, you know, one of 25 delivery partners, but we've just decided to focus on them and work with them mm -hmm. because they are the organisation that can find us the students that are going to benefit the most from this program. Yeah. So this program that we've launched is um, there's fewer volunteering opportunities for our staff. It's a much higher cost per student that comes through the program, but it's going to be much more impactful. Um, and again, it's an example of, I think, what, what's happening in the corporate world is particularly big corporations bringing these things in-house and funding their own programs and there'll be money available to the partners that are a delivery partner for us on our program so I think it's shifted a little bit yeah. from where it was I agree, and I think we're seeing that um, across the space, of focusing in, uh, really caring about impact, being more proactive with how you go out to find partners. Um, once you are uh, with someone, um, what does that dream partnership look like? Um, well, the, I think um, the partnership that we have with UNICEF is probably the, the dream partnership for us at the moment. It's the best partnership we've really been able to achieve. Um, we have been working with UNICEF for about 10 years now, but we started a global partnership with UNICEF formally in 2013. Since that time, we have raised and donated uh, close to 2 million US, I think it's about 1.8 at the moment, um, in cash, but we've, we've undertaken about 6 million uh, pounds in pro bono work. Um, so for us, it it really, um, as I said before, it enables our lawyers to use their skills to contribute something to UNICEF's work. Um, and it's a brand that our people around the world recognise. Um, as I think you said in the introduction, we're, we're quite a big firm. We have a big geographic footprint. Um, we are in more than 150 office locations, I think, now around the world. Um, and we don't need to explain to anybody in any of our offices what UNICEF mm. is. Everybody understands what UNICEF is. Um, also, I think it's important to say that um, as we have become a bigger and global firm, I think we're a little bit more conservative in the organisations that we choose to partner with. Mm. Um, UNICEF is an organisation that works very constructively with governments and also with business. 
they're not an organization that's going to cause a conflict for us with any of our clients. Some, many of our clients are governments. Many of our clients are big multinational corporations. They don't take an adversarial approach to working with business or government. They're very um, collaborative um, with everybody. Um, so that sort of suits us as a, as a big business with lots of clients um, and client relationships to manage. Um, when we were a smaller firm, we could be more adventurous with the kinds of organisations that we worked with and funded, but we've naturally had to become more conservative. Um, I think also UNICEF, you know, they obviously have a big uh, corporate partnerships team, um, so they're quite good at managing the relationship. Um, they're quite good at making introductions to different people in their offices around the world so that we have um, local connections. Um, so I will hear, for example, you know, somebody in our Sweden office is doing some work with UNICEF. Somebody in our Mexico office is doing somebody, some, some work with UNICEF in Mexico. Um, so it's not something that feels... It feels a little bit London-centric, but um, it feels very local as well um, in, in many places around the world, not everywhere. Um, and then, you know, UNICEF have also welcomed our lawyers into their their offices and their, you know, particularly their country program. So we've got a lawyer in the Gambia at the moment working with UNICEF on the transitional justice program there, making sure children's voices are included in that transitional justice pro program. So for us, it's a, it's a, you know, it's as close to a dream partnership as, as um, we've ever managed to get. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we're working to improve that, that partnership all the time. I think even the best relationships um, sometimes have their challenges or difficult moments. Um, how can an organization, uh, whether it's UNICEF or another one that you work with, um, kind of deal with those so when things go wrong, what do you want to see from your partners? Um, well, I think just I think it's just important to be frank. I mean, I can only speak from my own perspective. We, we have a very good relationship with UNICEF. It's a very frank and honest relationship. Um, if there's an issue, I let them know. Um, and if there's an issue from their perspective, they let me know. And I think that's all we want is just honesty and communication. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's no different to any other client relationship in the sense that we have with any of our clients. We treat them, we treat them like a client. They are a client. Um, and that is, that is a little bit more, I'd say that's more at the, the, the money we give them is more at the philanthropic end um, of the scale. So I talked a lot about you know, in us, in our Head Start program, what we want from the Sutton Trust, and you know, they're there to help us to find the students to bring into the program. Um, but the money we give to UNICEF is really a philanthropic donation, so we don't, we try not to ask too much of them. Um, we just want to help them to deliver on their, on their mission. Yeah. No, I think this is this is a really good segue into the next question, which is moving into the stewardship phase of a gift. So you said something that really stood out for you with UNICEF is their relationship management skills and their ability to communicate and be frank, but I assume that's also just the day-to-day -day and, and keeping up to date with reports and everything. Um, so what support has been committed from DLA with UNICEF or with other people or organizations? What are the most common mistakes um, you see organizations making that turn you off from committing additional support? Once they're, once they're already a partner of ours? Yeah, yeah. Once you've funded them. I'm not sure that we get turned off too much, to be honest. I mean, maybe it's because we're careful of the organisations we choose to support. Mm -hmm. We get to know them quite well before mm -hmm. we start providing a high level of financial support. And as I said, um, with UNICEF, it's very much a philanthropic donation. I'm not exactly sure mm. 
not exactly sure I can answer that. I, I mean, it's, it, it's really about relationships. I think the point that you made, though, about um, being honest and wanting partners that are honest with you um, is something that we've heard from almost every donor that's done this podcast, whether yeah. they are a huge foundation or an individual or a company. Um, there seems to be this real desire for that kind of open relationship and being transparent and uh partners not being afraid to share when not everything is going perfect and what they're doing to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I just cannot stress enough, I think, how <laughs> across the board that ends up being one of the most yeah. important things that keeps a relationship going. Absolutely. And funders are increasingly becoming more sophisticated. And it, as Alicia said, every single one of our guests has said that we want to deal with the truth. You know, don't tell us information up front. Don't let us find it out in public ways. You know, make sure that you manage that relationship very carefully. So it's it's great to hear that your partners have been very successful in that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's yeah. I, I think with UNICEF, one of the things we, we we do ask of UNICEF is their support when we're trying to raise money for them. So to give us the communications material that we need um, in order to be able to explain to people what the money is going to be used for and things like that. But you know, they're they're very good at that. It's mm-hmm. not usually it's not usually too difficult to get that that type of thing. Yeah, I think that's an interesting learning also for charities that might not have the amount of resource that UNICEF does because they obviously have this global brand that's a real asset for you in terms of having that recognition across your different markets. But for charities that might be a bit smaller and not have the same resource and recognition, it's it's important for them to be aware of the kind of assets they would need to have on hand. Mm. So, for example, those communication assets and the ability to to manage relationships on the day-to-day and to have them at the ready if if their partners were fundraising on behalf of them. I think that's a really good, it's a really interesting learning. I mean, I think before we turn it over to questions, um, what's the one thing, uh, Nick, that you'd like listeners to take away from this conversation? Um, Well, I think, as I just said, I think with with fundraising, relationships for us is really important, and I expect it's probably the same with other organizations as well. We give money to organizations that we know are effective in the way that they spend it. So we get to know the organization, we get to understand them, we like to see how they work and the results they get before we spend the money. And you really only get that by having a relationship and having worked with an organization for a while. So, you know, for us, um, the a donation is never the beginning of a relationship. There's always something that comes before that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be the one. That would probably be the one thing, as far as you know, from the perspective of a donor. Fantastic. Yeah. That's really cool. Thank you. Okay. Great. Right. Uh, so uh, we can take a few questions from the audience. You will be on the podcast uh, if you are happy with your question, I suppose. Um, Emily's got the mic, uh, and if you want to put your hand up and please introduce yourself and your organization when you ask your question. Hi, Nick. I'm Clem. I'm from DLA Piper. Um, I think it might be useful to explain how who reads the reports that um, our charitable partners produce, how senior they get to, because um, when I used to work in NGOs, sometimes we forgot that they'd go to the most senior people in an organisation, and if there were spelling mistakes or things that we didn't really think through or explain really well, and the language wasn't appropriate, um, that can be challenging for people to really connect with the work. Um, okay, well, I mean, obviously for an organisation like UNICEF where the, the funding runs into the millions of pounds, um, those reports go to our CEO and our executive and to our board. Um, but for smaller donations, um, it, it might just be to myself and my team. Um, we also... We don't, we don't have too many 
smaller partners, I don't think. I mean, sometimes our bigger offices might have a local charity partner or something like that that we don't really get involved in in my team. But certainly for the bigger for the bigger organisations that we support and the, the bigger partnerships, those reports can go right to the top. And um, having the support of the, the board and the CEO is ab- absolutely crucial to a partnership like the partnership that we have with UNICEF. So, you know, keeping them on side and keeping them supportive of the relationship is is really crucial. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Go on. Hi, I'm Bryony from the Hospital Club. Um, do you find that there's a tension between when you're planning your community programs between engagement for employees and stakeholders and clients and impact for your beneficiaries and how do you prioritise and manage that? In the pro bono practice, um, it, I think it would be fair to say we could probably do... Um, better quality and higher impact pro bono work in fewer hours if we just had a team of full-time pro bono lawyers sitting in a back room somewhere doing nothing but pro bono work Um, but we try to engage all of our lawyers in pro bono work and that means um, I think some of it is less efficient less effective than if you had just a full-time team of people so in the pro bono practice what we try to do is have the best of both worlds. We have a full-time team of pro bono lawyers that will get involved in sort of very complex um, and uh, difficult, in, in, intricate, involved um, human rights work. And then what we try to do is also have a, a mix of work, smaller cases, which which can be done by lawyers who have another full-time job you know, in, in, a, in a smaller amount of time. So it's about allocating the right kinds of work in the right way. Um, so, you know, for example, in, in, in the pro bono practice here in the UK, um, I said children was a focus. So if I take a few examples there, we are working with um, the National Deaf Children's Association um, Society, I think it is rather, um, to help um, children and their parents to appeal against decisions about their social welfare benefits payments Um, or we help uh, families with um, children with disabilities to get proper housing, social housing allocated and appeal decisions there. Those are the types of small cases that are quite easy for a lawyer to run, you know, just by allocating a a few hours a week to that. But there there are other examples of work that we do, like working with UNICEF to change the Children's Act in Bangladesh, which is much more um, complex, full-time, bigger commitment of time. And we have full-time lawyers in my team who will do that kind of work. And where there's tasks on that type of matter that we can allocate to a lawyer, you know, in the, in the corporate team or the government team, we'll, we'll involve other people in that work, but it's managed on a full-time basis by full-time people. And then I would say on, on the social mobility programs um, that I talked about, where we had you know 60 different programs running we had students coming in all over the place for all different kinds of programs as i said that generated very high numbers of volunteering opportunities for our staff but wasn't generating great income outcomes we we don't think um, for the students so the program that we've moved towards which is our head start program we recognize is less about volunteering opportunities for our staff and it's more about the impact on the students and we really don't mind that um so we've just said this program is about social mobility it's not about volunteering so we've just we've just bite the bullet on that one and accept that and it's it's a conversation that we just have to have with our management and with our with our people um 
and you know they're they're smart people and they're capable of understanding that we're doing we've made that decision we've made it for the right reason and if they if they really want to get involved well there's still some opportunities there there's not as many but for the people who really want to do it they'll 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 get to do it and be involved I think it's a balance across your portfolio. And I think um, in my experience at Trust Law, where we had lots of different charities and social enterprises coming to us uh, and asking us to match them up with lawyers for pro bono support, um, the, the biggest mistake that people made was not understanding what a lawyer could actually do for you versus a company. And I think um, really researching and understanding the business that you're working with or, or approaching and knowing what they do, what their core skills are, what you can be asking them for, and what is really not going to be the best use of their core skills is hugely important and a very overlooked step that, that I see a lot among fundraisers. Yeah, no, just to echo that, I think it's a really important question, and there's it's a really interesting thing with a law firm where the product and volunteering opportunity that they can offer is the skill of law versus other companies that might have a digital product or something that might not neatly fit in with a volunteering opportunity, and it's, it is a motivation for a lot of companies, so it's important to have that balance and it's definitely something we're seeing our clients, um, you know, grapple with. Thanks. Hi, uh, my name is Tom from Disability Charity Scope. Um, do you get uh, staff fatigue with both fundraising and pro bono work? You know, on a, you know, not another charity law case, or I fundraised for that charity last year. And, and how, if you do, how do you kind of tackle that with staff? Um, I would say, um, in relation to the pro bono work we do. Um, we, when I, I moved over to the UK five years ago from Australia, from our Sydney office, and I did find that there was a little bit of pro bono fatigue here when I arrived. And so we, I sort of looked into that a little bit. And what, one of the things I found was um, a lot of the fatigue was related to a particular type of pro bono work, and it was um, pro bono work for charities. All of our pro bono clients in the UK when I arrived five years ago was pro bono work for charities and um, that would be like an employment contract for a, a new employee or a funding agreement with a with a donor um, or the lease on a new premises for the charity and people would do that work and it didn't look that different to their other work if they were an employment lawyer they were doing the same work for their corporate clients if they were a real estate lawyer they were doing the same sort of work for their real estate clients right leases and those sorts of things and so that work I found didn't really inspire or motivate people to want to do more. And you, I heard people say things like, oh, I did pro bono work last year. This year I'm going to join the netball team, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and that was something I'd never come across in Australia before. And the, the difference was in the type of pro bono work that we were doing. So what I have introduced in the UK now is a lot more pro bono work for individuals. So you just heard me talk about you know, appealing a social welfare benefits decision for a, a deaf child, helping a child to regularise their immigration status is, you know, another uh, project that we do with um, Coram Children's Law Centre. Um, and what I find is when lawyers do work for individuals, they help a family to find appropriate housing for their child with a disability. They help a child regularise their immigration status so they can stay in the UK or they get somebody out of immigration detention. As soon as they finish that case, they come back and say, I want to do another one of those. So there's something about that type of work which really inspires lawyers and makes them want to do more. And they see the skills they have can really have an important impact on an individual. And so they don't want to waste that opportunity. I think they, they feel good about it, but they also see that you know, because they've got those skills, they've almost got a moral obligation to 
help the next person to get out of immigration detention. They don't want to leave people there. So they always come back looking for more. So on the pro bono side, um, that's how we've addressed that problem of fatigue. We don't really see that anymore. Um, and I would say on the volunteering side, um, we are such a big organisation that um, if people sort of, if an individual has done that program once and they don't want to do it again, that's sort of okay because there's another person who will do it next time. Um, so we don't have, and you know, we've we've reduced our volu- as I said, we've focused more on the the impact of the programs rather than the number of volunteering opportunities. So actually, the volunteering opportunities I would say have sort of reduced year on year, um, and so I think that has also dealt with that problem of you know fatigue. I don't think you know you don't you don't see members of my team going around knocking on doors, sort of we need another five people for this program that's coming up next week. We would never do that because that's the, completely the wrong mindset. People have to apply to be on our programs. It's not an automatic... We don't go begging ever as a rule. It's not the impression that I want to have for myself or my team in the firm. If you want to get involved in this pro bono project in Bangladesh, you have to apply. And guess what? In order to get onto that program, you have to tell us all the pro bono work you've already done. And, you know, it, it's... It's a, it's a switch in, in mindset. So I, we don't sort of view the world through that type of prism. What a surprise. Lawyers like a competitive uh, <laughs> opportunity to do something. I've never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing, Nick. Um, I think we have time for one final question. Thank you. Hi, Sarah Mitchell from Heart of the City. Hi, Hi Sarah. Hi, Nick. Um, you've mentioned impact a couple of times, both in terms of the importance of uh, charities themselves demonstrating impact and your programmes here at DLA Piper. I think this is something that businesses and charity partnerships sometimes find quite challenging. And I was just wondering if you could talk about what you've done here and any advice you might have. <clears throat> sure. Um, so... Um, I'll just give a, a couple of examples, um, and they both involve Alicia, and she can then give you the detail. Um, so on the UNICEF partnership, um, at the conclusion of the first three years of that partnership, we had Alicia to come in and review the, the relationship um, and evaluate you know, the effectiveness of the partnership effectively. Um, and then um, on the scholarships program that I talked about that we've developed, which is the two-year program for s- law students, studying in the least developed countries um, we've we've asked Alicia to evaluate to, to develop a, a framework to evaluate the effectiveness of that program it's not really in our skill set as lawyers to do that um, and um, while we do occasionally do some evaluation in-house um, we just decided because of the sheer size of the investment um, in the scholarship program that it would be better to do that externally so we've asked IG advisors to to um, develop a framework for the evaluation of that program and I think the, the evaluation is going to go over six years for those students who are going to track them into their careers um, um, but what I, w- what I will say, I'll just give an example of some of, of um, the way we evaluate some of our pro bono work and, and in, like an example of an internal evaluation so um, when, we, when we do um, certain types of pro bono work internationally um, we will often have people internal to the firm evaluate the work, but external to the program. So we might use a retired partner, for example, who's now a consultant, um, who's given, given up full-time practice, who would um, travel to a country where we've done some pro bono work, interview the clients, review the work, but he'll, he or she would also interview the lawyers who are involved in the program, 
then make recommendations back to our team about you know how it could be done differently or more effectively next time or anything that could be improved. So we have that sort of pro- process in place for some of our pro bono work and then for the scholarships program I can let Alicia talk a little bit more about the evaluation framework. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing um, is to understand from the beginning what you're trying to achieve, what are the things that will show you whether or not you're able to achieve that, how will you measure them, when will you measure them, um, and then making sure you're checking in at a regular basis to see how you are progressing or not. It's not rocket science. And I think um, often both companies and charity partners get afraid of jumping into that uh, evaluation or impact space because um, they think you need an advanced degree in statistics to take that forward, when actually there's so much that can be done by just being extremely clear up front about what those objectives are and building a framework around that. Um, Having more of a common sense evaluation approach uh, or approach to evaluation and impact reporting. So we do that with clients on both sides. And with one of the um, most exciting things about the project that we're doing with them on the Global Scholarships reporting um, is that we are getting to start from the very beginning of the program and see it all the way through. So uh, I think that's where things get tripped up a lot of times if you try to retrofit uh, measurement of what impact looks like after you've already been down the line for a little while, it's a lot more challenging than someone who said, no, this is really important to us that we are looking at the impact of this. We're going to do it from the very beginning and we're going to build it into the DNA of what we're building. So we are really delighted to be a part of that project. Um, but I think it's one of the things that uh, DLA has been, uh, especially among law firms, particularly good at wanting to interrogate where they are succeeding, where they're achieving their aims, where they need to make some tweaks or changes and being open to that. Yeah, part of it is about recognizing your own limitations and making sure you're getting the right help. Fantastic. All right, I think I think that may be it. Well, thank you thank so you much, very much, Nick. It's yeah, really no, nice thanks for thanks for hosting us in this stunning office and for your insight. It's been incredible. Thank you, everyone who came and asked questions. We'll be around probably until about 10:50. We do have to be out by 11, so come find us, ask questions, mingle, coffee, etc. And thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Be careful that the mic's not still recording while you're uh... I know, don't gossip over here. Don't gossip. hear it. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. Of course, we want to send a huge thank you to Nick Patrick for his generous time and advice, and to Lorena Rodrigo and the entire DLA team for hosting us in their beautiful office. And also a big thank you to all of our audience members who came to the event. It was such an inspiring, buzzy morning and just so lovely to connect in person. This June actually marks one year since we launched What Donors Want, and we now have thousands of listeners from all over the world. From the US, UK, Canada, to Indonesia, via Ethiopia, Malta, and Bangladesh, it's really blown us away. So thank you for tuning in, for reaching out. We love hearing from you and knowing that this podcast is having an impact. We have an exciting pipeline of donors to interview through the autumn, so stay tuned. I really want to tell you who they are, but I'm going to keep it a secret, and trust me, they are very good. That said, if you have any ideas of who we should interview or any burning questions you want us to ask, please do continue to reach out. You can check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors. Or you can reach out to me personally. My email is rachel at ig-advisors.com and we can grab a coffee. Uh, So that's really all I got to say. Thanks again for listening. See you soon.